I couldn't see the forest for the trees, and I wonder if any of you have felt like me. Uh, my wife and I were just a couple years into our marriage, or I'm sorry, a couple weeks rather, into our marriage, and I got home from a day of school uh, and work, and I found myself in our living room. Now, our living room is probably about as big as this little front section of the stage, so I couldn't have missed anything that was in that living room, uh, but I discovered a foreign object in my living room. It was right there on top of my coffee table. It was this peculiar, I don't know if you guys have seen these. It was this peculiar kind of half circle thing. And I'd never seen one before. So I was like, what is that? And then inside of this little half circle thing, there were these full circle things. They were foreign objects. They were weird. I had never seen them. And I needed help understanding what was going on in my living room. So when my wife got home, I knew that she was going to be the one to help me understand what was going on. I said, love, what are those foreign objects on my coffee table? She said, oh, the decorative bowl and the decorative balls. Those are just a little something that I picked up. I said, hold on. Did you pick it up or did you buy it? She said, well, I bought it. I said, what are you spending money on a decorative bowl and a decorative ball? What is the purpose of a decorative half bowl and a decorative ball? Anyway, what I couldn't see when I was looking at those trees is the forest that my wife desired to make a home out of our house. That my wife desired to, as she told me the phrase, it's called nesting. And she reminds me of that phrase every time she buys much more expensive items nowadays than those little $12 decorative balls and bowls. But again, I wonder if any of us have missed the forest for the trees like I did those first few weeks of marriage. And I think that is a sort of example uh, drawing our attention to that very familiar phrase, missing the forest for the trees, that we're going to need to think about uh, this morning as we look into the Gospel of Mark for the past several months, we've been in an ongoing study called The Last Days of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure some of you are wondering uh, if you're going to see your own last days before we get to the end of this sermon series. But this morning, uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. Uh, So if you want to, go ahead and open up in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. And if you're using our City Church app, which I know a lot of you are, uh, we've moved our notes section. uh, So I want to give you quick instruction on where those notes are now. Uh, You'll open up the app and you'll go to Sermon, which is the button at the bottom. Go to Sermon and then click on the last days at the top. And after that, click on Part 15. And when you go into part 15, you'll see the little notes section right there, and you'll be able to follow along with me. Now, Mark 13, we're dealing with a a big chunk of text. Uh, So we're going to put it on the screen behind me. Again, it's in your City Church app. Uh, I'm going to read it all at once, and then we're going to get into the rest of the, the application of the sermon. So follow along with me. Take a big breath as we jump into this big piece of the scripture. Mark 13 Verse 1, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. 
Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray this will not take place in winter, because those days will be of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord did not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At the time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. And assuming that this is as clear to y'all as it is to me, why don't I just pray to wrap our time up and then we'll head on home. On the contrary, this is not very clear. If anything, upon first reading, it's incredible, incredibly unclear. Do you guys agree? You're just like, what did drinking from a fire hose when we're reading that? Further, I need to say that from the outset, there's more here than I could hope to deal with appropriately in the time that we have this morning. Although, I do think the constraints of time will help our considerations because when it comes to Mark chapter 13, many can't see the forest for the trees. Many get lost in the details and don't see the big picture. To clarify, I'm not saying that the details aren't important. There are important details in this passage, some of which I'll deal with and some of which I won't, because I believe the most valuable way uh, to use our time this morning dealing with this portion of Mark's gospel is the forest, not the trees. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, thank you. So before we get to the forest, I have chosen a pair of of details. I've chosen a pair of trees, important details that I want to address. Again, the trees are immediate observations that we'll make in the text. And then the forest is ongoing implications. So first, I want to look at two immediate observations. The pair of them found in Mark's gospel here in chapter 13 are the temple... And you might write that down. It's in your notes. And the second one is the abomination that causes desolation. Out of all the details that I could have chose to look at, these are the two uh, that I want to spend my time looking at here. So first, let's take a closer look at one of the trees, one of the details here in the forest, which is the temple. 
Um, as last week Jeff concluded in the temple, this week in chapter 13, uh, we begin by Jesus walking out of the temple, which to first century Jewish readers would have been completely familiar. They would have understood what this meant immediately. They would understand the significance and the importance of the temple, which many of us aren't familiar with, and that makes complete sense. The temple was the epicenter of Jewish religious life. The original, quote, magnificent temple was constructed by King Solomon. King David, who was Solomon's dad, was told by God that Solomon would actually construct this magnificent temple. It would be the Lord's house and his courts. And God told David that he was not allowed to construct the temple because he was a man of bloodshed and a man of war. King David, Solomon's dad, commissioned Solomon in great detail, providing a blueprint for the temple's construction. Uh, If you want some fascinating afternoon reading, I encourage you to check out 1 Chronicles chapter 28. That's where you'll see this uh, series of events come to pass. You can get a glimpse into King David's commission of Solomon regarding the temple. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. So, King Solomon sets out to build this temple at immense cost and innumerable man hours. Again, Solomon's magnificent temple was the Lord's house in that it was constructed, and get this, to be the meeting place between God and man, to house the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments. Both of those artifacts were kept in the most secretive and separated room in all of the temple, which is called the Holy of Holies. This room could only be accessed once a year by one person. That's the chief priest, the high priest. Beyond the Holy of Holies, there were inner rooms and a place of atonement. There were outer rooms and an outer sanctuary. There was a treasury. There were storerooms. There were additional buildings. There were temple courts with an altar for burnt offerings and water basins for ceremonial cleansing. There were portions of this building that were covered in gold. Its foundations were established with imported cedar and the finest quarried stone available in that time. For perspective, just for our perspective this morning, because this might seem completely irrelevant to us, but for perspective, the highest point of the magnificent temple was more than 200 feet tall. A quick exercise, look up at our ceiling. How tall do you guys think our ceiling is? It's not even 40 feet tall. So the heights of the magnificent temple were anywhere between five and seven times the height of our ceiling here. The structure was huge. It was magnificent. King Solomon spared no expense and assumed so much debt in the construction of the temple that he was forced to pay off King Haram, uh, the guy who supplied the vast quantities of imported cedar, and his debt, get this, get what his debt cost him. He had to pay off King Haram at the cost of 20 towns in Galilee. And you think your visa bill is high, right? 20 towns in Galilee. Again, the temple was the absolute epicenter for the nation of Israel and Jewish culture. And most certainly Jewish religious life. The bedrock and cornerstone of where the nation of Israel was to look for assurance in their relationship with God. The temple was considered a house of prayer for all the nations, the meeting place between man and God. 
So it's this temple that Jesus strolls out of as we begin chapter 13, followed by his disciples who remark at its magnificence. And I mean, just based on that brief description, can you imagine how stunning this structure must have been? Not to mention how meaningful it must have been to these first century Jewish folk as the literal house of the Lord, the meeting place between God and man, the house of prayer for all nations. And what Jesus says about it is that not one stone of the whole entire campus will be left on top of another stone. It will be utterly destroyed. On Friday night, my wife and I uh, took a little walk. We strolled over to uh, the recently opened Owen Block building. It's a beautiful multifamily row house uh, in downtown Evansville at the corner of 2nd and Chestnut. Originally, uh, it was built in 19, or I'm sorry, 1882. And over the years, it fell into disrepair. And then in 2015, it was slated for um, demolition. Do we have that picture by chance of the blue Owen Block building? Is it up there? Okay. So this is how it looked when it was slated for destruction, demolition. We'll leave that up there for a second. So when the news gets out that the Owen block is going to be destroyed, uh, there's seemingly a last-ditch effort to save the Owen block by lovers of architecture and history and lovers of the resurgence of downtown Evansville, who would become referred to as blockheads. That's what these people who got behind it were called, blockheads. Get this, in nine days, $220,000 was raised by individual blockheads. Nine days, $220,000. That caught the attention of the higher-ups, and in the span of nine weeks, the amount doubled to $440,000, amassed by blockheads, local city government, a statewide nonprofit called Indiana Landmarks with the tagline, Let's Save Places That Matter. All of this inertia and advocacy led to the rescue and restoration of the Owen block. And on Friday night when we went down there, this is what it looked like. Just beautiful, completely restored, rescued. So we're at this open house on Friday night. And not only are the apartments beautiful, we took a tour of one of the apartments in the gym in the basement. But it was also a beautiful celebration, right, of this collaborative win between citizens and city government, the statewide nonprofit and the local renovation company. There was social significance and cultural significance and economic significance. And in all of the hoopla, I just couldn't get Jesus's response out of my head when I was walking around this beautiful building. And all of the ways that the Owen Block is significant to Evansville and Evansvillians, even the state of Indiana, it just utterly pales in comparison to the significance of the temple to the nation of Israel and to the Jewish people. And it's in that reality that Jesus says, you see all these magnificent buildings, these beautiful stones, these wonderful structures, well, not one stone of them will be laid on top of another because, again, it's going to be utterly wiped away, utterly destroyed. Okay, that's a tree that I wanted all of us to see. That's a specific detail here in this big portion of Scripture that I wanted us to see. It's an important tree in the forest of this section. But, again, remember, I want us to see the forest and not the trees, 
Now, the second tree is this odd phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. So we've dealt with the temple, and now I want to deal specifically with the abomination that causes desolation. Again, the first century Jewish audience would have heard that, and it would have clicked. They would have been much more familiar with that phrase that to many of us just seems odd and confusing. I mean, what is that supposed to mean? Their familiarity comes from one of their major prophets, uh, the prophet Daniel. Briefly, I'll reference a scripture from the book of Daniel uh, that's on about this reference, found in chapter 11, verse 31 and 32, which reads, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Again, we could spend a month of Sundays unpacking the meaning just of these two verses and their correlation to where we are in Mark's gospel right now. But for today's purposes, I want us to take note of one specific thing in these verses. This abomination that causes desolation is actually personified in Daniel's prophecy. Did y'all see that? Verse 31 begins with his. Verse 32 ends with him. This abomination that causes desolation is personified. So the immediate question that comes to mind is, who is he? Who is this person? And furthermore, who are these armies and when will they desecrate the temple that we've been considering this morning? A quick cross-reference to where we are in Mark's gospel is Luke chapter 21. Again, you can write that down if you'd like. Luke 21 provides us some additional clarity when Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Which brings final questions to mind. Who are these armies? And why are they surrounding Jerusalem? And this could be a whole semester's worth of history class, but here it is in a nutshell. In summary, the year was A.D. 70. And after the failed Great Revolt, of the Jewish people. They wanted to throw off Roman dictatorship of Israel. Roman armies surround Jerusalem. And somehow they breach the walls of the city, besieging Jerusalem. And as one writer puts it, listen to this. This is fascinating use of language. When Rome uh, penetrates their walls, Rome initiated an orgy of violence and destruction. That's what's going on in AD 70 culminating in the absolute leveling of the temple, not leaving one stone on top of another. Which takes us back to our first question. So who is he? His armed forces at the beginning of verse 31. He who was resisted uh, by the people who knew their God there at the end of verse 32. Who is he? Well, he is the Antichrist whose spirit is at work in all godlessness. His armed forces there at the beginning of verse 31. Not only the Roman destruction of the temple in AD 70, that was godlessness, but also the Jewish rebellion against the will and commands and prophets and laws of God. So there's godlessness on both sides. And again, the spirit of whom is involved in all forms of godlessness that belittles the truth and kindness and graciousness and patience of the living God, even today, even here, even now. Not failing to mention, he who is working the disbelief of men and women, even this morning, 
who rage against the very God who made them and sustains them, gives them breath and life and everything else, heartbeats and the bodies in which their minds are set, with which they have the capacity to think thoughts like this. This God, who I'm hearing about even now, is foolishness. Maybe he's far off. Maybe he's utterly false. That's godlessness, and the spirit of the Antichrist is behind that work. But as Daniel mentioned, the Antichrist is firmly resisted by those who know their God then and now, which makes me ask the question, do you know this God? Is he your God? Have you believed in this God? Okay, we've dealt with the pair of immediate observations. And if you are bored, it's okay, because it's going to get a little bit more interesting going forward here. I just wanted to uh, call out those two specific things because they are meaningful. So I want us to see a few ongoing implications. There are a lot of immediate things to these people in this time here in the text, but there are also ongoing implications for us, men and women, in Evansville in 2016 today. We'll spend the remainder of our time now seeing the forest or the big picture what we'll have to do to see it is uh, sort of elevate our view or takes a, take a bird's eye view of the whole section that we've read here in Mark 13. To do so, I've organized my thoughts under three headings. Again, these are three ongoing implications of this portion of text for all of us. And here are my three headings. First, Jesus' primary concern. Second, Jesus' people's commission. And third, Jesus' peculiar encouragements. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. First, Jesus' primary concern. What is Jesus' primary concern in all of these verses that we just read? After reading this passage, did it uh, stick out, you know, turn on like a light bulb and say, oh, there it is. It's obvious. I get it. Amidst all of the chaos, right? Wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms, earthquakes, famines, brothers delivering brothers to death, fathers delivering their children to death, children rising up and delivering their parents to death, desolation, destruction, amidst all of that, which may seem oddly familiar to us nowadays, amidst all of that chaos, Jesus' primary concern is the well-being of his followers. Jesus' primary concern is the well-being of his followers. Jesus isn't frazzled by the chaos. Rather, he's forthright about it. I hope that is an encouragement to you this morning, that the Lord is not uh, caught off guard by what's going on in your life and your times and your circumstances. He knows about it. He's well aware. Jesus wasn't frazzled. He's forthright about it because he doesn't want his friends who are his followers to be caught off guard. He wants them to know what's coming. He's concerned with their well-being. And that is a big picture, seeing the forest instead of the trees, ongoing implication of this section. Follower of Jesus, again, do you know amidst the chaos of your life, in our lives, and in our times, that the Lord Jesus himself is concerned with your well-being. He's concerned for you. For those of you who are yet to believe in the Lord Jesus, uh, do you know that the God of the universe is concerned for you? He's not your enemy. He's not opposed to you. He doesn't desire to smite you. He doesn't desire to bring ill into your world. He cares about you. He sees you. He knows you, your circumstances, and your relationships. He has you in mind. He has all of us in mind. 
Jesus' primary concern being the well-being of his followers amidst all of this chaos reminded me of another sentiment of Jesus expressed in John's gospel. And we'll put that scripture up on the screen here. John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And another sentiment of Jesus is caught uh, a chapter later in his high priestly prayer when he's praying for his disciples and then those, would, those who would be affected by the work of his disciples, which are Christians nowadays. Jesus prays, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. You see, Jesus' primary concern is the well-being of his people. But do you realize that his assurance The assurance that he gives us, men and women, even today, is himself. That's the only assurance that Christ offers, is himself. Those who believe are uh, only given assurance in Christ, not in their politics, in our policies, in our secure borders, in our alliances, our food reserves, not the Federal Reserve or nuclear warheads. We don't have assurance in any of those things. At best, those things have temporary power and temporary effect and temporary ability, temporary reach and temporary results. Jesus' primary concern for the well-being of his people, that they be fully prepared for the realities that they face in this fallen and broken and selfish world, utterly under the influence and kingship of the Antichrist, and yet that we would be marked by peace and protection that only comes from knowing the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And these aren't mere words. I mean, I essentially get paid to talk, right? So I wonder if sometimes you guys are like, is he just up there talking? Talk is cheap, right? These aren't just mere words. The assurance of what Christ is offering uh, first comes to these disciples of his, his friends and his followers uh, who he spent day and night with for the past three years. Men who would experience the very chaos that we've discussed at length this morning. Men who would experience Roman armies, surrounding Jerusalem, scourging the city, initiating an orgy of violence and destruction, forcing the misery accounted for by Jewish historians, including famines that resulted in cannibalism. Historians, Jewish historians that account for what was going on around AD 70 said parents were forced to eat their children. And it's in this context that Jesus gives the assurance of himself knowing that in AD 70, Jerusalem would be ransacked, cut off, and the temple destroyed. Jesus isn't just a nice guy with nice things to say to nice people. Jesus speaks what he speaks into our reality, into our world, into our brokenness. And if Jesus gave the assurance of knowing him in those circumstances, uh, we certainly have no need for any other assurance than Christ himself today in our lives this morning. This assurance was in Paul's mind when he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider everything garbage. Everything. What would it be like for us if we considered all assurances other than Jesus Christ as trash? garbage that we put out to the street every single week. That was the hope and the assurance of the apostle Paul himself, who lived a very real and very troubling and very threatened life. 
Okay, Jesus' primary concern is the well-being of his followers and his friends, that they find assurance in him as they live out their days in a very chaotic reality, which leads us to our second ongoing implication, which is Jesus' people's commission. Jesus' people's commission. In light of such grueling circumstances, such chaotic reality, what were Jesus' disciples to do? What was their job? What was their next step? Jesus' people's commission, and I wonder if this is going to catch you off guard, is to preach the gospel. That's what Jesus said you are to do going forward. Smack dab in the middle of this section, there at verse 10, we find these words, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. There at Mark 13, verse 10. Well, who is preaching the gospel? Christians are. Jesus' people are preaching the gospel. Jews and Gentiles alike, men and women alike, slave and free, the ordinary unschooled and the religiously trained people affected by the scandalous reality of what Jesus has accomplished for them in his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and soon coming return. And where are these people to be preaching the gospel? In the world, all over the world, to all nations, which is why Jesus prayed for God to not take them out of the world, but to protect them. How many Christians I know that say, yo, I can't wait to die. Get me out of here. This place is going off the rails. This place is wild. Jesus, take the wheel and take it into a ditch so I can be with you. But Jesus doesn't pray for Christians to be taken out of the world, rather that we would remain in the world, be protected so that we could be about his commission, which is preaching the gospel to the world. The chaotic world, the broken world, the world ravaged by sin and selfishness and death, full of wars and rumors of wars, full of nations rising against nations and kingdoms rising against kingdoms, full of earthquakes and famines, full of families forsaking one another, brother killing brother, father killing child, child killing parents, the world full of desolation and destruction. That is exactly where Jesus' people's commission is to preach the gospel. Do you preach the gospel, Christian, in your world, in your dirty world, in your ugly world, in your broken world, in the sinful world? Or do you just say, yo, I can't, I mean, that's not, that's not my job. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to go there. It's too ugly for me. It's too dirty for me. Your job, your commission is to preach the gospel and the reality and the circumstances of the life, the reality that's going on around you. What an utterly fascinating commission that amidst the lies of men, we are to preach the truth of God. Amidst the hate of people, we are to preach the love of God. That amidst the destruction and desolation and division of the Antichrist, that we are to preach the unity and harmony and redemption and restoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. That amidst the grandeur of military might, the immensity of natural disasters, the agony of famine in our world that is throbbing and pulsing in birth pains, our commission, the call of Jesus on our lives is to preach the gospel. And I wonder if some of you are thinking, that sounds so weak. That sounds feeble. Doesn't sound strong enough. Doesn't sound sexy enough. Jesus' people's commission is to preach the gospel. Along these lines, I have two passing references that the idea of preaching the gospel is weakness. Romans 1.16, many of you will be familiar with it. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is the power of God 
that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is not weakness. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God, the strength of God. In contrast to the chaos of our world, preaching the gospel may seem like such weakness. But in fact, the gospel in and of itself is the storehold, the stronghold of the power of God. And remember, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Jesus' people's commission is to preach the gospel, which brings us to our third and final ongoing implication, Jesus' peculiar encouragements. And I had fun with this. I mean, I wonder if you guys read the scriptures and ask questions. What's going on here? I wonder if you interact with the scripture. Feel free to ask questions. Have fun. Allow your mind to go where your mind will go. Okay, in light of such coming catastrophes, right? These uh, world-altering events that Jesus said is, yo, it's coming down the line. Devastation and desolation. Who could ever reasonably encourage anyone along the lines of verse 7? Do not be alarmed. Why wouldn't I be alarmed? Why wouldn't we be alarmed? Who in their right mind of verse 11 could encourage people who are going to experience these tribulations? uh, Do not worry. Why wouldn't you worry? Of course we're worried. How many of us are racked by worry this morning? And our world, frankly, isn't as bad as it got in AD 70. This, this made me think who in their right mind could encourage people in such a way. Do not be alarmed. Do not worry in light of such realities. And C.S. Lewis's famous alliteration came to mind that Jesus must either be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. As we tease that out, certainly a liar could give these encouragements, right? In the face of what Jesus said was coming, he could just straight out lie and say, you know what? Don't even worry about it. Well, of course that they're going to worry about it, but he would be a liar there. If Jesus were a lunatic, he could also give that same advice because if he were out of his mind, he wouldn't be confined to the reasonable and logical framework of giving sound advice. But what if Jesus' peculiar encouragements, do not worry, do not be afraid, were actually coming from the Lord of the universe, the sovereign creator of heaven and earth who exists independently from all things outside of time and space and circumstances. That would be an interesting angle on such encouragements to not be alarmed or to not be worried, which led me to wonder if there were other places where Jesus discusses worry and any similar seriousness. That led me to Matthew 6, where Jesus uh, just does a 180 of the world system and he tells his followers, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, do not worry about what you wear, do not worry about tomorrow. That seems pretty serious. Can you imagine a world, your world, without those worries? Worrying ourselves through our days about our lives, our food, our drink, our clothing, our covering, worrying any remainder of our time about what's going to come tomorrow and then just repeating that same cycle of worry day after day after day. The 180 comes into play when Jesus teaches his disciples to, instead of worrying about those things, be worried, be mindful, be preoccupied with the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God that allows us to properly love ourselves and expresses itself in an overflow of love to our neighbors and to our enemies and back to God himself. And get this, he says, when we are busy worrying about those things, 
the kingdom of God, and the righteousness of God, everything else that we waste our lives accumulating will be given to us. That seems like a pretty serious consideration of worry there in Matthew 6. And that, again, would be easy for a liar or a lunatic to say, but what if the Lord said it? One more instance came to mind as I thought about Jesus discussing worry and similar seriousness uh, that we've seen to Mark 13 today. Very serious circumstances. Um, This other example was in Luke 12 where Jesus teaches his followers the following uh, lesson. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus' peculiar encouragements truly only make sense if he is the Lord. But let's consider as we close what it cost Jesus to say such things. Did he put his money where his mouth is? The temple will be destroyed, Jesus says. Elsewhere, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. He made such a statement with the realization that he himself would be destroyed as, again, get this, as the ultimate temple, the ultimate meeting place between God and man. That's why Jesus said the temple will be destroyed because he was going to replace it. Knowing that his own destruction on a Roman cross was before him, Jesus' primary concern was the men and women who he came into this world not to condemn, but to save. It's these men and women whose salvation is tied up in his destruction as the ultimate temple where God meets men and women whom Jesus is giving peculiar encouragements. Do not worry. Do not be alarmed. Prioritize your life in the way and manner of the kingdom of God. Understand that you are more valuable than you could ever discover within this world system. See that the sparrows are bought and sold for the fraction of a penny considered less than nothing in the eyes of the world and yet they're not forsaken or forgotten by God. And you, your hairs are numbered. You're in full view of the eyes of the Lord, your circumstances and your concerns. You are so much more valuable than the sparrows. But do you believe that? How valuable, you may ask. And I point in one direction to the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem that was ransacked and destroyed by Rome. The only man who lived the perfect life each of us should have lived but didn't and couldn't. The only man who undeservingly died the sinner's death, which all of us should have died and yet we need not die. That's how valuable you are. You were ransomed at the cost of the life of the son of God who was forsaken by God so that you may never be forsaken. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ who incarnated, lived, died, resurrected, ascended, and is soon coming to return for all of those who believe in him. The preaching of this gospel is Jesus' people's commission, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Do you believe? Will you pray with me? Lord, our uh, smaller realities are so consuming. Our circumstances, our seasons of life, what we're going through, uh, demand all of our attention. 
They dictate our course of life, the course of our thoughts. We're, we're preoccupied with those realities. What's going on in, in, in my life? What's going on in the world around me? And yet, Jesus, you have the audacity to enter into a reality very similar uh, to ours and tell us to not worry, to not be concerned, to not be anxious. And Jesus, that's ultimately because you are well aware of a reality that is greater than our small realities. That there is a God that exists independently uh, outside of all of our circumstances, all of our seasons, all of our times, all of our struggles. And that that God in the person of Jesus Christ was reconciling the world to himself. God, what would it look like if we found ourselves believing that and living in that greater reality? Not forsaking our smaller realities, but bringing the perspective of the greater reality into our smaller realities. God, ultimately we see that that is what you have done in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that you've taken on human flesh uh, to bring that greater reality to us. We can't work our way toward it. We can't uh, get it. We can't capture it. And that is what is so scandalous about the gospel, that God became man so that men and women would become the sons of God. That's our only hope, Lord, in life and in death. Our hope isn't in ourself. Our hope isn't in our circumstances. Our hope is in no assurance other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we thank you for him, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your work, your love, your compassion on behalf of all who believe. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.